Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So far from Luke chapter 18, let's also turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, we'll read verses 9 through 31. Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. 
So far, the reading of God's Word. As we reflect on what we've just read, let's sing together from Psalm a summary of the Christian faith and doctrine and the confession of this Christian church. And we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 23. That's on page 537 of your books of praise if you wish to read along. Lord's Day 23, there the question is, what does it help you now that you believe all this? And this is the Heidelberg, or excuse me, the Apostles' Creed that it's referring to. What does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments and have never kept any of them and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I never had nor committed any sin and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. So far, the catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, over the last um, many months, at least six months, we've been working our way through the Apostles' Creed uh, as the most basic summary of the Christian faith confessed by the Christian church for many, many centuries. Uh, And the reason we've been uh, doing this, working through the Creed, uh, the reason we've been doing that is found all the way back in Lord's Day 7, a long time ago. We looked at Lord's Day 7, which asked the question, what does faith believe? And so we spent six months answering that question. Here's what faith believes. Well, now the Catechism, as we've wrapped that up, addresses us with a second and very important question. Why does all of this matter? Now you believe it. Why does it matter? Uh, Why does it matter that we know all of this doctrine? How does it help us that we spent all this time? Well, the answer the Catechism gives is very short, very succinct, and very important. It is, in Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. That's going to need some unpacking, uh, but it's, in other words, saying, how does it help us that we spend all this time studying the Apostles' Creed? Because through the Creed, we come to know the grace of God that's in Christ, by which we are righteous before God. So it does need some unpacking, and that's what this Lord's Day is all about. It's taking what we know about Christ and showing us here's why and how that impacts your salvation. Uh, So how exactly is it that we are righteous before God? That's what we just said we are. How? And, And this is where this doctrine comes together in a single, simple gospel message. The whole of the creed is reduced to a very simple message, and it is this. We are saved 
by nothing but the blood of Christ. So this whole Lord's Day is about. We are saved. Saved from what? From the wrath of God. We've talked about that. Saved from hell. Saved from the judgment that our sins deserve. Saved from eternal death by nothing but the blood of Christ. That's the most basic, most central, most important message of Scripture. Uh, Scripture, in the first place, is not a book about how great we are. It's not about us. It's not a book about how we can make God happy with our behavior. It's not about that. It's not a book about rules, though it has rules. More than anything else, it is a book about the grace of God revealed in Christ to undeserving sinners. So that's our message also for this afternoon. And we want to think about three important aspects of that message. Uh, So the message is we are saved by nothing but the grace of God in Christ. And we want to look at three things. First, the confession that precedes that grace. Secondly, the blood that has purchased that grace. And then thirdly, the faith that receives that grace. So we are saved by nothing but the blood, or by the, but the grace of God in Christ. Uh, the first thing we want to understand uh, in order to grasp this message uh, is the confession that must precede grace. You cannot receive grace without the confession that precedes it, which is the confession that I am unworthy of it. I'm unworthy of this grace. Now, the Lord Jesus gave us an example of this in the parable that we just read from uh, Luke uh, regarding the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in that parable, you find two very different attitudes towards grace. Uh, Now, you may not have noticed this before, but both the Pharisee and the tax collector uh, are, are acknowledging God's grace. Both of them, both the Pharisee and tax collector, acknowledge God's grace. For both of them, they recognize uh, God's grace is necessary for salvation. Uh, For the Pharisee, it is God's grace that has made him a better and more worthy person deserving of eternal life. Uh, He's saying, uh, so so we can see he sees it as grace because he gives thanks to God. He's not just patting himself on the back. He's saying, God, I thank you that you have made me better than all of these other people. For him, that's God's grace. God's grace, from his perspective, is God keeping us from sin, making us good people who are worthy of his kingdom. That's God's grace. Well, the tax collector has a very different understanding of grace. Uh, For him, God's grace has nothing to do with making us worthy, even though that would be grace. If God makes us worthy, that would be grace. Uh, But for the, the, the tax collector, that discussion is not even on the table. For him, God's grace is God's mercy, sparing sinners from the hell that they deserve. He knows he's not worthy. He's not praying for worthiness. He's not thanking God for making him worthy. He's praying for God's mercy. Both of them see grace. It's a very different view of grace. So Jesus sets up these two individuals side by side and these two different views of God's grace. And he asks his disciples, uh, which of these do you suppose went home justified? The one who by God's grace was worthy 
or the one who, uh, by God's grace, confessed his unworthiness and received God's mercy? Which of these represent the grace of God to sinners? Now, the truth is, there's a deep part of us, whether we admit it or not, there's a deep part of us that wants to believe the first, the Pharisee, that's what God's grace looks like. Uh, God makes us good people, makes us worthy people, and that's how we inherit eternal life. It's God's grace, but it's God making us worthy. There's a deep part of us that wants to believe that, but the parable that Jesus uh, gives us exposes the error in that way of thinking, which is this, every one of us, like that tax collector, is not worthy of God's mercy or grace. Every one of us is unworthy. Uh, The only difference between these two is the tax collector saw that he was unworthy. The Pharisee didn't. It's not that one was worthy, the other wasn't. Both were unworthy. One of them saw it. The other didn't. And so one of them went home justified. It was not the Pharisee. So if we are to understand God's grace, we need to begin with the confession that precedes grace, which is, God, have mercy on me, an unworthy sinner. I am not worthy of eternal life. I don't deserve God's grace. I don't deserve his mercy. I am a wretch, and I know it all too well. We saw that as well in Romans 3, which we read a moment ago. In that chapter, Paul describes the condition of the human race. Uh, And his description of the human race is not, oh, there are good people out there and bad people out there. Uh, Thank God we're not the bad people. That would have been the Pharisees' view of uh, the human race. Uh, But Paul's description is accurate and on point. It is, none is righteous, no, not one. They have all turned away. No one understands. No one seeks God. Together they have become worthless. He says, no one does good, not even one. So true understanding of God's grace begins there. Begins with that confession, I am not worthy. I have nothing to bring to the table for my salvation except for the unworthiness for which reason I need saving. My supposed righteousness with which I flatter myself day by day in which I all too often trust is in God's eyes like worthless rags. It doesn't come close to what God expects from me, much less does it make up for the evil that I have also done. There's nothing in me that makes me worthy. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And and that confession, what it does is it bows before the righteousness of God and acknowledges, God, you are holy. You are holy. I am not. You are just. And if you were to condemn me to hell, you would do right in so doing. I deserve it. There's not a commandment I've kept, and there's a host of commandments I've broken. The things that God detests, that He abominates, those very things I have done. The things that God loves, that God created me to do and commanded me to do, I have not done. And even worse, I know what lives in my heart. And so as far as God is concerned, uh, His investment in me, in creating me, is an investment that I have wasted, that I have ruined. 
I've wasted the very breath God has given me uh, to serve Him, to serve others, and I've given it towards pursuing worthless, empty things. I know, uh, I know who I am. That confession must precede God's grace. If we are saved, it is by nothing but the pure grace of God. In the second place, we need to see the blood, the blood that has purchased God's grace. There is a basis, a ground for God's grace. God's grace is not just God forgiving sinners because He can. Mark Twain put it that, put it that way once. He said, God forgives me, that's God's job. Well, that's not God's job. That's not what God is obliged to do. And it's not what God just freely does. Indeed, without the blood of Christ, He cannot and would not forgive sinners. The grace of God is grounded in a price that's been paid, uh, and that price is the precious blood of Christ. Nothing can make us right with God except for the blood of Christ. Not our worthiness, we already saw that. Uh, Not the worthiness of our confession. Not the depth of our humility can make us right with God. Nor even the sincerity in us acknowledging our unworthiness. It wasn't the confession of the tax collector that saved him. It was the blood of Christ that saved him. Uh, None of those things make us right with God. Without the blood of Christ, nothing can save us. That's what makes it such a tremendously sweet thing to read from the pen of the Apostle Paul what he says after he describes the horrible condition of the human race. He says, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested, that is the righteousness uh, by which God makes us right before him, has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He says there is no distinction, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus uh, and, and, and he describes that redemption with these words, Him whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. I want to say a thing about that word. Uh, the word propitiation uh, refers to the act of turning one's anger away by offering a gift uh, to pay for it, by offering a price. Uh, uh, So turning away anger by a gift. And that's exactly what Paul is describing in the gift of Christ. God himself put forward the blood of Christ, which is the propitiation, the thing that turns God's anger away from us. And it's the only thing that could ever turn God's anger away from us. Now there's good news and there's bad news in that message. The bad news is that means nothing else can save you but the blood of Christ. God would not have sent Christ to die if there were some other way for sinners to be saved. Uh, So the bad news is if you're still hoping in your righteousness, if you're still that Pharisee uh, believing that somehow God has made you worthy in yourself, uh, or you think your sincerity or your humility is going to count for something in the sight of God, it's not. That's not what will save you. You have nothing to offer to buy your salvation. That's the bad news. The good news is you don't need anything else to earn your salvation. Now listen again to the text. Through Christ Jesus, whom God put forward 
as a propitiation by his blood. If God put him forward, I dare say that's going to be a sufficient price. That's the price God put forward for our salvation. Uh, The blood of Christ, then, is the only possible ground for salvation, but it is a sufficient ground for our salvation, for the salvation even of the worst sinner. And so if you uh, identify yourself as the worst sinner, which you should, even the Apostle Paul describes himself as such, if you identify yourself as the worst sinner, know that there is a price that pays for your sin too. And we tend to get into this funk where we think that uh, I am unworthy and I cannot ever be worthy of God's grace. You can't. You can't. But Christ is, and that's all you need. So that's the good news. What that means for us then is that on the one hand, we must relinquish every hope of salvation. We must of salvation in ourselves. It is utter foolishness. It's even pride and obstinacy to keep looking within for reasons for hope instead of looking without to Christ. On the other hand, it does mean we get to relinquish every other hope. We get to rest. We get to trust in the one who can save us because we can't trust anywhere else. We get to stop trying to be what we cannot be good enough to be saved. And we get to rest in the price that has been paid. And so receive the blood of Christ, and you have nothing left to fear. No debt left to be paid. Nothing left that you still need to bring. Nothing that you still need to do to finish what Christ has started. Receive the blood of Christ, and you, sinner, are forgiven and counted right in the eyes of God. You are justified. You have eternal life, and nothing can take it from you. And that then brings us to the last thing that we want to see, the faith by which the grace of God is received. Now, the grace of God is described in these verses as given in Christ, whom God put forward, he says as a propitiation, given in Christ and received in faith. Now, we're going to spend more time next week looking at what faith uh, means, what's what's involved in faith, what it does, what it looks like. But now we just want to ask the question, simple question, what does it mean that the grace of God is received by faith? What does that mean, and what does that faith uh, require? Uh, To to some, the moment we talk about uh, you need faith to receive Christ that, that message is received as one burden, maybe a small one, but one burden that God does heap on our shoulders. You need to have faith. Uh, and who knows what's all involved in that faith. And that's how the gospel can easily end up being distorted uh, in our own minds, where it said, yes, we are justified by God's grace as a gift through Christ, but it's got to be received by faith and That faith is a living faith and an active faith and an obedient faith. And in that way, we end up heaping the whole law right back onto our backs until it crushes us once again in the belief that we must still somehow be worthy. And I'm not disputing here that true faith is obedient and living and active and so forth. But to bring that in here at this point completely misses the point that Paul is making 
The only aspect of faith that matters is not the quality of that faith, but the object of that faith. It's not how good or worthy or great or powerful or strong that faith is. It is what does that faith look to. Uh, I give this analogy sometimes in uh, catechism. Perhaps you've heard it. I forgive, or forgive me if, 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 I, if I have used this already. But if you have strong faith and you're on a, on a sinking ship and your faith is in the anchor, the anchor that's going to save you, you're going to hold on to that thing and it's going to save you, it doesn't matter how strong your faith is, you're going to sink. You can have the greatest faith in the world in the wrong object and you're going to sink. Or you could have faith in a rowboat, and it might be weak faith. It might be faithful of fear. It might be faithful of doubts. But it's faith in the right object. And that faith, as long as it's strong enough to get you to the rowboat, that faith will save you. The only thing that matters in terms of our salvation is not the quality of our faith. It's the object of our faith. To whom do we look? Faith, then, is simply the empty hand that receives the gift of God in Christ. Uh, That is all that matters. Everything else as far as the obedience of faith, the activity of faith, or anything else that flows out of that faith uh, is, is given to us in Christ, worked in us by Christ, the Christ to whom we hold on to by faith. So if the question is posed, what kind of faith saves? The answer has nothing to do with the faith and everything to do with the one to whom faith looks. Now, you're not going to find the answer by talking about strong faith or worthy faith. You will find the answer by talking about faith that looks to the one that God has given. Faith simply receives and embraces the free gift of Christ. Again, you see that in Romans 3, uh, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That's all that faith does. It receives the gift given by God. Uh, It doesn't earn it. It doesn't make us worthy of it. It simply receives it. Let me then just bring this home with a couple words of application. It is the perennial temptation for every one of us to constantly go back into ourselves, looking for some basis in our salvation, in our own works or our own worthiness. We all do this. We all do this oftentimes, most of the time, without even realizing that that's what we're doing. Uh, We do it so subtly, we don't even notice it. Think about it. When we sin, when we fall into sin, we immediately feel as if now we've done it, now we've blown it, now we've lost God's favor. Our conscience tells us, you've ruined things. And so what do we do? What do we do when that guilt of conscience comes upon us? Well, we immediately begin looking for ways, do we not, to start making up for the wrong that we did. Or we start justifying ourselves. It really wasn't that bad. We minimize uh, what we've done. We exert ourselves. If I failed here, I'll make up for it somewhere else in my life. At least I still do this. Right? We've all said that. Uh, And then on the other hand, uh, so that's when we have a bad day, when we fall into sin and we're trying to earn God's favor. On the other hand, when we 
uh, think that we're having a pretty good day. Uh, We take on the role of the Pharisee in our parable, uh, and we believe, we instinctively feel as if God now looks upon us with favor. Well, the truth is, if God's favor towards us were ever based on our performance in any given day, he would be wholly and entirely against us every single day of our life. But instead, God looks on us with favor day after day. The good days and the bad days, God looks on us with favor because he sees in us not our performance, but the perfect obedience of Christ and the poured out blood of Christ. And that's what makes this such sweet news. Because of Christ, we can lift up our faces towards God, look to Him, and simply say, Thank you, Lord, because you still love me. Thank you that you still, in spite of all this, hold on to me. Thank you that I still get to be your child, loved by you because of Christ. Thank you also for promising to walk beside me as we deal with my sin, and I don't have to deal with it alone. And thank you that your favor towards me never ceases because it isn't grounded in me. It's not because I'm good. It's because you are good. And we are saved then by nothing but the grace of God in Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, see it. See your and confess your unworthiness and look Look to the poured out blood of Christ, the only price that could ever be paid to obtain God's grace. Don't look to yourself. Don't look within yourself. You won't find what you're looking for. Don't waste your time asking whether your faith is enough, whether your faith is worthy. It isn't. Of course it isn't. Look to Christ, the only hope of salvation for the whole world. And God's promise, God's promise to you is that those who look to Christ, who confess Him as Lord, and seek their salvation in Him, shall find eternal life. Amen. Let's respond to God's